Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Global Marketing Podcast. Today, I, I am so excited to introduce our guest because we got something fun to talk about. But before we get into that, I've had some listeners say that they didn't realize that the show was sponsored by Rapport International. So it is. Rapport International provides high-quality translation and interpretation services. And you can just Google Rapport poor translations uh, to find out more about the company. Uh, so now on to the guest. So we welcome Mayumi Ishii, and she's a former McKinsey consultant and a former security analyst who left those high paying, powerful jobs to become an entrepreneur and solve a 5,000 year old problem. So welcome, Mayumi. Thank you, Wendy. So happy to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you on. So why don't we start out with the 5,000 year old problem? What is it that you're trying to solve or yes. you solved? <laughs> Yes, the uh, have you ever lost an earring, especially since we started wearing masks since the lot COVID, a lot of us have been having this serious problem of losing an earring back or worse yet, losing an earring and we solved the whole problem of lost earrings by inventing and bringing to you the most genius jewelry invention ever, according to People magazine, the most secure earring bag that one pair replaces all your earring bag to keep them secure on your ears. Now, I have to let you know, I was so impressed. I, you were so gracious to send me a pair of them so I could try them out before the podcast. And it came in this beautiful, uh, like rose colored package and the, their earring backs. I think, you know, how different can an earring back really be? And I, and I've certainly had the problem, um, you know, thank God, not 5,000 years ago, cause I wasn't around, but I understand women have been wearing earrings since then. But I tried them because I was really curious and I wanted to be able to talk to them. I love them. So they're called Chrismella, C-R-C-H-R-Y-S, Chris, like Chrysalis, Chrismella, M-E-L-A. For those of you who are listening, we'll also have it in the show notes. And I put them on and they felt like going on like a regular earring back. And then I went to pull it off like I do a regular one and it won't come off there's a special little attachment that you pull with your fingers to release a catch. This is so cool. I know, none of us think of, of uh, earring back until you lose an earring or earring back. And this invention is just brilliant. My partner in Japan invented it. 
um, it uses um, patented locking technology involving five, uh, three microbial bearings who, that are spring activated. So as you know, the three prongs, the most uh, strongest co uh, contact point on any surface. So these little tiny balls lock onto your earring post in a warm budge until you unlock it. It's I, patented in five countries, US, UK, France, Italy, and Japan, of course. Okay, so it's fantastic. So anybody listening, I mean, if you wear earrings or give earrings as a present or need a present for somebody, just go find them and order them. They're, they're uh, you know, not inexpensive, but you only need one pair for all your earrings and then you don't have to worry about losing them. And so this this podcast is really talking to consumer product companies that want to cross borders and particularly um, for companies that want to come into the United States. So you mentioned your partners in Japan. Tell me about who your partner is. Yes. Her name is Eri Kikunaga. She's a wonderful partner uh, who invented this amazing uh, earring back called Chrismella. And uh, she invented it after she lost an important earring from a gift from then her boyfriend. And they got into a huge fight to the point they broke up over the lost earring. And then she said to herself, oh, this is so stupid. <laughs> and I'm going to solve this silly problem of lost earrings once for all in the world. And she had really such a uh, grit and uh, she invented it. And she visited all the high-tech factories in Japan. All 200 of them said, no, honey, it's impossible to make something like this tiny and so complicated. But she never gave up. And number 201, the factory we currently work with, they said, yes, we can. And when I heard the story, and I, after I discovered this wonderful product on one of my business trips to Tokyo, I fell in love with both the story and the product. And I told myself, I got to do this. I got to bring this to the US and share with everyone. Okay, which I, I love that. I mean, any entrepreneur listening to it is if you have passion about it and you believe in it, you just keep going because then it's going to hit. Okay, so you wanted to bring it into the United States. How do you go about doing that? What was your first step? Great question. Of course, I had zero retail experience. I never sold any product one by one. You know, my background is analyst and I'm, I'm a consultant. So I never did anything hands-on. So I had to learn everything from scratch. I kind of knew about marketing, the importance of certain things and logistics and how to make money and you know, PL and everything. However, bringing actually a product from a, outside of the US, got it together, get the branding done, everything. It involves so many details and so many facets of the business system from inventory control to marketing and service and everything. So I learned a little by little and from everybody. So talk me through the steps. Like what was the first thing you did and the okay. second and yeah. yeah. 
Great question. I don't recall exact sequence because so many yeah. things were happening at, this, at the same time. So number one, I fell in love with the product. I knew I need to bring this to the US and check the patent, we were patented. And then I didn't want to go to the, um, I did want to go to direct consumer because that's how you learn directly from consumer. And I was always curious how uh, Amazon helps entrepreneurs like myself with zero retail experience. Um, when I started, um, compared to now, there was much less um, the backend uh, help, but now there's so much de uh, data, and so much tutorials available, so much easier now. There are so many resources. So I launched on, I opened Amazon store first, and then people, the order started coming in, um, the word of mouth started. I got a big break um, working with this uh, online marketplace, um, which unfortunately folded since, but we create amazing video. And they were one of the uh, pioneer in clickable uh, video um, shopping experience. So at that time, um, I had a really uh, fortunate relationship with them and they assigned us, Chris Mella, the, one of the really great uh, Hollywood movie producer and she did a wonderful job. So to this date, we are using their footage and it's been wonderful. So it was a little investment, but I knew to explain something like Chris Mella, which is a brand new category, high-end earring replacement with technology to solve 5,000-year-old problem, lost earrings. It was not, this category it didn't exist. So I need to kind of brainwash, in a sense, like people, educate people, tell people how it works, how it's important. So the video creation was a very important process. Mm -hmm. And okay, so that so that was the marketing. You decided to go to Amazon first. You make sure your patents are checked, and then do the videos. And where would people see the videos on Amazon or on your website? Now, now everywhere on our website and Amazon. And actually, Wendy, I skipped the critical um, uh, step, which I had to do pretty early on, even before launched on Amazon, which is brand name. Should we, should we or should we not keep the same brand name or product name called Chris Mella Catch? Chris Mella Catch doesn't mean anything to us in the English world. Um, catch, actually in Japan, we call um, earring back, not back a cat. We call it catch. Mm -hmm. In Japanese, catch. So we call it catch. That's why it's called, this was branded um, name. This product was named Chris Mella Catch in Japan. So I had a two challenges. Should I keep catch part or should I keep Chris Mella part? Chris Mella, you know, as you know, the uh, branding 101 is you search, <laughs> make sure nobody has it, and then make sure it's available on the URL, you know, all the social channels. And I, tried to come up with a bunch of like hundreds of names. None of them was available across the board from URL to social channels, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and those are all taken. 
even without real products, a lot of people, smart people already registered those bunch of names. So I was really stuck. So should I keep, should I come up really with some other name or should I keep uh, Chris Mella cat? And at the end of the day, I decided to um, keep the names the same as in Japan uh, to, for two reasons. One, these names were available. Nobody had Chris Mala because it's a <laughs> unique name. And secondly, it's, uh, it makes sense because for a novice retailer myself, um, changing packaging, changing all the pro product packaging from the US to uh, from Japan, Japanese version to US costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of commitment. And I didn't have that kind of resource. So it made practical sense to keep the same packaging and logo uh, consistent across the board uh, in Japanese market, Japanese speaking market and also English speaking market. Wow. Yes. So that's a huge thing. And then, then everybody shopping online, you can leverage the brand a lot easier. Now, did you test Chris Mella with any uh, U.S. consumers to see if it had any meeting? Yes, uh, I did. I did um, this uh, actually a few months before we officially launched. I did the um, field survey and uh, consumer testing from the price point to, you know, the name to packaging and everything. And uh, it was no scientific approach because I didn't have much resources. Basically, I, I used uh, friends and family, but you know, they are the old target market who, who wear nice earrings and who are active, playing golf, tennis, um, power shopping. So, so um, they were good target markets. So I found out price point. I learned a lot what everybody said uh, was really helpful. Oh, okay. And so is the price point similar in Japan as yes. in the US? Yes, it is slightly higher right now. However, pretty much on par because um, we, we couldn't push. This is a $50 um, in platinum, yellow, gold, and rose gold. One pair replaces all your earrings. And, but it, it is $50 and it's about the same. Um, but, you know, as you know, importing from something uh, from overseas, especially Japan with heavy, um, the hefty uh, import tax on these products because of the um, um, precious metal content, it was really difficult for me to increase the price to 70 or $100 because if nobody buys it, it it's the end of the story. So we, I decided to keep it at $50. But um, that's where the D2C um, help was very helpful. Okay, so you ended up keeping the price point, the um, name, the brand, the packaging. Mm -hmm. And now how about the messaging? Yes, slightly different. Um, packaging and the messaging uh, and target audience a little younger in Japan. And uh, in the States, I always wanted to aim high end who have nice diamond earrings, which were like special presents from the boyfriend or parents or husband. Um, 
lots of memories and diamond studs are very popular in the States and all various sizes, tiny one to pretty big ones. And especially, you know, half carat to above, everybody's really worried about losing it. So um, I wanted initially target that audience because as you know, the um, consumer funnel is like, early adapters, you know, who try anything at any price point or like when, you know, iPhone came out, there are certain people who wanted to um, buy right away. So that's the people I wanted to target initially and spread the word about Chris Mella. Okay. And your partner who founded it, did she originally target the younger ones in Japan? No, the, uh, in Japan, the um, majority of people who wear pierced earrings are a little younger. In, in the States, everybody starts wearing earrings even when you're a toddler in some cases. And all of the majority of us are wearing it already in high school or you know, even earlier around teenager. And in the state, I mean, in Japan, on the other hand, parents are really strict and schools are really strict. So the, I grew up in Tokyo. The, my four, my, the, I got piercing finally when I turned 20. So that's more typical. So, um, and then older generation, you know, the uh, didn't have a chance to have piercing. That was not that popular. So, so baby boomers above far less percentage wise than the younger generation. So that's kind of our pie was more skewed to a younger generation in Japan. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so the 20 to 40 year olds are going to have the money choose for themselves and recognize the importance of an earring back. Whereas in the US, a lot more people wear earrings. Older people have the money and they're more apt to have valuable earrings and spend the money. Okay, now what about, uh, that's fascinating. So that's very different. And you did your research to, how did you research to figure that out? Or did you know because you're bicultural? Yeah, I kind of knew, but we verified by doing market research. We did the um, um, comprehensive market research in Japan and also in the States. And both countries, surprisingly or naturally, 86% of us who wear pierced earrings have lost an earring at least once, many yeah. people, many more. So that 86% number, according to our own research in Japan and the US, it's the same number, which is ridiculous. Why in the 21st century, we are still losing an earring? Right, oh, right, right. This is just brilliant. Okay, so how did you do the market research to, to verify that? So there are different levels of doing this. And there are some researches we found outside, but we did, uh, in Japan, we polled uh, 1,000 people. In the States, we did a couple of hundred. So to us, it's not science. We just want to verify our uh, thesis hypothesis um, to just do it right. Okay. And so, I mean, that's a really good point to an entrepreneur that wants to cross the country, you know, cross the borders and go into different countries is come up with a hypothesis or what you think from what you know, and then just test, do a smaller sample size and test it. Okay. So what about other countries? 
Yes, um, so power of internet, a lot of people Google or search on amazon.com, um, they find, you know, this, this solution exists to the lost earrings. So they don't necessarily know our name, but secure earring back or locking earring back or the best earring back turns Chris Mella pretty high, which is really lucky. And uh, so we do get receive orders from Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and other countries. And we did um, <clears throat> open Amazon UK as well. So now are you marketing in any languages besides English and Japanese? Not yet, um, not yet, except for we have a wonderful jeweler, um, one of the prominent jewelers in Malaysia who's selling. And so they speak a bunch of different languages and including dialects. So they do communicate um, uh, about Chris Mella. But otherwise, as again, once again, the target audience we have are bilingual or trilingual, especially Europeans. And they do speak mostly English as well. So um, that part is pretty lucky. Our English content and marketing messages uh, are understood in different countries. Okay, well, I do have to pipe in here and say that the research shows that most people would prefer to buy in their native language and over half of them are willing to spend more. So how did you come about the decision to just do English and Japanese now instead of looking at translating? We'd love to, ultimately, we'd love to be in German and French and such, however, and that's why we patented Chris Mella in France, in Italy as well. Um, again, it's, um, you know, could be chicken and egg problem, but we need um, to make a decision like, like that, um, depending on, um, based on ROI. So if volume picks up, yes, we wanna, translate everything into French. Uh, we want to communicate and put more marketing muscle um, to go after French market or German market. But that takes a lot of efforts and we are so busy enough. Um, we are still cracking the tip of the iceberg in English speaking or US market alone. And uh, uh, the, so what, little by little in the future, definitely. However, Chris, um, the uh, Amazon does generate, uh, translate some of the pages. So it is viewable and um, available. It's not the same, but uh, to some extent, there's a little first step is being done. But as you pointed out, Wendy, it's really important to localize eventually. Right, and how did you localize when you went from uh, Japan to the US? Did so I did pretty much everything. So I wrote and then uh, checked with the lawyers to make sure it's, you know, um, okay. And, and then test with a bunch of people um, how it reads and pretty basic, pretty hands-on. Which is, will, that's a huge advantage because you know Japanese and you know English because you've been doing business in it. So you could do it yourself. And that was one of the first things that you had to do. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. What have been some of your biggest challenges? 
Um, number one is still to this, this date, how to spread the word. So Wendy, I really appreciate for you to invite me to be on your show because this is another way to talk to your audience about Chrismella and hello, something like this exists in the market available right now to solve the problem. So this is very important, little by little. And second, um, uh, hurdle was a lot of people in the States after like first year, I heard so many customers asking us, we need more support or lift function, which we didn't have. And so after listening to US customers requests, we um, created a, a sister version, big sister version to Chris Catch with support disk. We call it Chris Extra. This clear disk supports and lift up uh, your earrings and your earlobe, kind of like push-up bra. And it makes huge <laughs> difference. Also, for when, if you have cold hands in the morning, it's much easier to handle because it's so tiny. Um, so it's doing really well. So that's US driven um, product um, development, it was. Okay, so explain this a little bit more to me. How would somebody even know they needed lift on their earlobes? So Are they heavier earrings or is no. it? No, the um, unfortunately, um, uh, this is uh, something I learned. I didn't. I had no idea. So the earlobe is a cartridge. So with uh, the more number of years you spend on Earth, you your cartridge of earlobe could give in to Earth's um, gravity. So and especially if you are wearing big chunky earrings when you are dancing when you are in college it's pulled down, that's another extra gravity effect. So over the years, the, it gets, could be wrinkled or could get thinner and could be softer to support hefty earrings. So if you enjoy sparkle of uh, diamonds, especially it could sag and kind of face downwards if your cartridge doesn't support. So this support function of the disc is very important, not only for to solve the current problem, but also preventative as well. Kind of like a bra. Do you wear a bra to kind of support and lift? Yes. And if you don't, you know what happens. So the same idea. Oh, that is so fascinating. I mean, I've had some of the stuff from aging, but I didn't know my earlobes could even. I, I had no idea either. I had no idea, but our customers told us. So that's interesting. Yes, yes. And there, there it goes back to you. We're marketing, marketing towards an older customer base. And so the feedback you're going to get would be different than if it was a younger one. That's so fantastic that you listen to the, the customer base. Huh. Okay. So the challenges have been to uh, spread the word and then that they wanted this additional um, lift to the earring back, which you've now come up with. That's fantastic. And I do have to say you held it up and it, you know, for people who are listening to the podcast, you can't see it, but in each little box, when you get it, it says made in Japan with love, you know? So it's another, I mean, to me, I really like that, but I'm a global citizen. And so I'd love for you to talk about how you came to the decision to put that in there. 
Great question. Thanks for asking. So three years ago, I was really lucky to be invited to be a contestant of the uh, this business um, pitch contest on MSNBC, and I won. And um, that led me to one spot on Home Shopping Network, HSN. So that was most uh, scariest experience ever on TV. However, during the process, as you know, the HSN, such a large retailer, have so many rules. And one of them was you need a sticker or some explanation on the package that says where it's made. So you know when you buy anything, it, it, your T-shirt, anything could say made in China, made in you know Bangladesh, anything. So I need to put something somewhere on the package, and our package is really tiny, you know, like this credit card size, including brochure. So I did not, and we are targeting really sophisticated, fashionable adult market, grown-ups, and who appreciate nice things and beautiful things. So I didn't want to ruin this little silly tiny sticker that would say typically made in Japan, I know made in China. I didn't want to go there. So I was thinking, should I put in a brochure? They said, no, has to be on the pack, on the product itself, not on the brochure, they said. So their legal department was really, really uh, demanding. And then I came up with, oh, what if we say inside of the package, you know, made in Japan? And then while we are at it, they, they use, let's do it gold foil. And plus, why don't we say, might as well, made in Japan with love. So here we are. <laughs> oh, how fascinating. I love that story because it just feels like such a heartfelt touch that would come from your partner's original story, but it really was a practical need, but it stays within your brand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's interesting because a lot of people might say, well, you know, Americans want American made goods, but I'm seeing a change in that. And you had a sophisticated adult market, which had probably traveled quite a bit. Yeah. Also, this was only possible to be made in Japan because we use high-tech factories, six of them who are behind um, iPhone camera um, technology and that kind of precision technology and so many of them, so many levels from the parts to each individual um, component and final assembly, everything, it wasn't possible. It's not, still not possible anywhere other than our partners. So, I kicked the tile before I started because I was really scared. Oh, is this the right thing to do? And I really wore my Anna's hat and well, visited all the factories to kick the tire, make sure this is what I really need to do. All right. So I got two questions there for you. So the first is just the Japanese factories are the only ones that could do it. Like there's no place. So even finding a factory in the US wouldn't have the precision technology. And you were talking about ball bearings and these little earring backs. I'm like, I, I wouldn't even be able to pick up the bearings. They'd be so small. So it's another example of if you're an entrepreneur and you have an idea, don't just look at factories in your country, look for other places of where their specialty. Okay, and then you talked about, um, 
kicking the tire and really looking at it in your analyst's hat, what things did you look at before you partnered with somebody? Yeah, so I visited up the, um, the area, my partner, <clears throat> when I first met her, she said, you are the, the, I've been waiting for somebody like you. So I was really touched. And then she gave me the bunch of samples to test the market. I was really flattered because she trusted me. And uh, that was one thing, that trust. And uh, we, to this date, we still treasure that kind of mutual trust. Secondly, kicking the tire, when I visited um, all these factories in Japan, talk to all the owners, talk to everybody who worked there, talk, um, look at the floor, how clean it is and how efficient they work and what kind of other products they make. Whole level was just fantastic and top notch, naturally world-class because they work for other bunch of uh, world-class fine watches companies and high technology, high tech things. So there was a, that level of trust as well. And thirdly, the fact that Aerie had this grit after being rejected by 200 high tech factories in Japan said, no, it's impossible to make. But these guys we work with currently said, we, yes, we can. That level of difficulty and how they are executing every day, um, that made me feel really proud to work with them. That's, that's fantastic. So it's really going to visit and talk to people and developing the trust is so important. So now they're all manufactured over there and you have to bring them into the United States. And then if you're selling a lot on Amazon, like how, how did you work out the distribution? So um, the Japanese factories and my partners in Japan are fantastic. And I tried to, I learned how to forecast on how to pre-order um, at least several several uh, weeks in advance and then with a little long range couple months ahead what's coming or what's happening kind of uh, um, you know get them some ideas so they can prepare and then uh, because this is so lucky, it's so tiny and so feather light, it doesn't even wear out, it doesn't weigh even weigh one ounce, it's a half an ounce per product. So we use um, FedEx um, Air. <laughs> it's not even economy, they discontinued the economy since pandemic, but so um, we, um, we import by thousands and uh, in air by air by FedEx but it so it's pretty quick process I order they fill the ship and then these days it's really fast it arrives like the other last one last week was arrived in like three days of course time difference but they shipped on Tuesday I got it on Thursday morning in Los Angeles which is amazing right that's crazy so, I tried to, you know, because I was, uh, I, I, I know, I'm, I understand finance and uh, I know the cost of um, inventory, excess inventory. So I, I tried to turn it very, very efficiently. And um, so that's how it works. And so where do you store them? Do you? Uh, so they arrive in, I'm based in LA. So they come to LA and then we ship to warehouses or Amazon. 
Um, and, uh, you know, this uh, tiny product like us and then a little brand like Chris Mala, do you know how many warehouses Chris, um, Amazon stock how across many? the country? Guess how many? Five? These days, over 20. So that's how same day or next day shipping is possible. So majority of um, major cities in the state, if you order through Amazon, you can get it either next day, or it's, they call it same day. So that's if you order right now before like 11 or noonish, you will get it tomorrow, which is amazing. <laughs> that, is, that is crazy. So they have to have huge warehouses in a lot of cities. And then you just watch how many items are there and replenish them as they need. Yeah, luckily we just ship to one location in California. That's where um, they tell us to ship. And then from there, they spread to um, many warehouses. Okay, so they'll decide where to put them yeah. out. And yeah, they, they know that where the demand is, where people are clicking or they left it in the cart. So they know. So are most of your sales now through Amazon? Uh, Amazon is one of the very, very important um, channel for us. But we okay. do work with other retailers and jewelers and um, on uh, directly with uh, through our website. Oh, okay. So people can go to your website. They can go to Amazon. Yeah. And then when you sell through jewelers, do you have to go to the independent jewelers or is there... Yeah, majority of them, um, they come to us, they see it as on their customers said, oh, this is better. Why don't you stock? So that's the wonderful thing. And also they see it on uh, Instagram or face Facebook or our articles about um, the brand or me or podcast. So Okay, so they're finding you. So you really have uh, in your inbound marketing working. Jewelers are really savvy because they want a best customer service. Yeah. And in Japan, actually, Chris Mala is represented at 1,000 jewelers. So, and then many of them use Chris Mala as a gift with purchase for the best customers. Oh, thank you so much for, you know, buying $22,000 earrings and here's, Here's a um, Chris Mella to lock it safely. So that's what the many of our jeweler uh, customers doing that same in, in the States as well. That's fantastic. Yes, because it's a fan. Yeah, so I could see that. Um, and what about jewelry manufacturers? Do you ever sell to them? No, yeah. Like On the, I, I really hope so soon. So if you are listening to this podcast and if you have a big jeweler, please contact me. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you really started with the consumer, then you went to the retailer, and then the manufacturer will be like the third stage of marketing. Okay. So anybody manufacturing jewelry out there, you definitely have to get in touch with Chris Mella. Uh, C-H-R-Y-S, Mella, M-E-L-A. It's all one word, Chris Mella. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned Tiffany would be a big target for you, right? I'd love to work with them. 
Hey, does anybody have a contact at Tiffany? I mean, it's crazy that Tiffany's not hooked up with Chris Mella at this point. Now, do you have any other people working here in the United States? So I work with a bunch of um, really talented um, people in marketing, PR, Instagram management, and social channels, and various uh, and uh, warehouses. Yes, but these days there are a lot of talent, a deep bench, in um, who are independent consultants or independent um, uh, PR agent available these days. And I love working with young, talented people because they bring a lot of ideas to me that I had no idea. So I'm learning a lot from all my managers. Okay, so that's it. So you're really an entrepreneur who's leveraging the gig economy or independent contractors to run all your business. Yeah, I really believe in it. And I really believe in supporting them. And I myself has been solo entrepreneur for many, many years. And I know I the freedom we enjoy is really um, liber- um, um, make us more productive and yeah. more um, enjoy the life and have fun doing both playing, uh, working as well. So I like the balance. Oh my gosh. What a, what an inspiration. I mean, that's so interesting. Cause as I was listening to the different types of things that you're doing, you're doing it all and you can do it without an employee. And so what recommendations would you give to somebody who wants to come into the United States or wants to go into another country to find a person like you so they can expand? Great question. In my case, I just so read the huge article in Japanese um, newspaper called Nikkei, which is a Wall Street Journal equivalent. In Japan, in Japanese, there was a huge article about my partner, Eri, and about Chris Mella. That's how I discovered, I learned about the product and I bought it right away uh, on Amazon Japan. And then when I went to Japan, I started wearing it and uh, fell in love with it. So if you wanna market um, internationally uh, and find the market in the other countries, I think one of your customer could be good target. And then so you may wanna say, oh, we, are, we wanna go to this country or that country. And if you read this article, contact me, that kind of thing may work. Or these days, you know, the Instagram uh, social channels or even LinkedIn would be really powerful. And also uh, trade organizations, you may, you can just order, um, write a short article about your product and your intention. Okay, if you are in Indonesia looking for somebody, a partner in the States or vice versa, you may wanna write the article and share or being on, on the guest of a podcast like Wendy's, then <laughs> that would be a good thing because like-minded people will be listening or watching. So that's where you wanna go. I love that. I'm gonna take that advice because at Rapport International, uh, we'd like to expand into the, the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Switzerland, we've identified those as, as good companies. So if anybody's listening and is interested in starting a division in one of those uh, countries or becoming an entrepreneur, reach out to us. So it's having the intention and then putting it out there. 
that's uh, that's really a great idea. Um, what do you miss about Japan? Oh, the miss about seeing my mom because you know it's been two years. I used to go um, two or three times a year to Japan and do some business meetings, and then also see my mom and go to spa, go to onsen with her. So and good food in Japan, and I really miss it. And especially watching in uh, Olympics, you know, I don't miss. It. Summer in summer weather in Japan, not at all. But I miss food and shopping, seeing my mom. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so you've had you've had experience both in Japan and the United States. You've also had the experience of being a consultant and an analyst in a large company versus being an entrepreneur. Can you? kind of give us a comparison and contrast to that for people who might be thinking about being an entrepreneur or exporting. Yeah, so it's a really interesting thing. I think doing, for me to launch Chris Miller business was like late life um, uh, pivot. And I had no idea before I started, I was gonna do this. And uh, so it's a nice surprise, but I'm ha having a great time working for large companies, uh, especially when you are in your 20s, it's really struck a great learning experience. You learn a lot in a very structured way. You learn about people as well. So it's really, uh, to me, I was really lucky to, my first job was, uh, was with McKinsey and they assigned me to international studies. I would go to Europe and then it was a lot of fun. And I worked really long hours, but I knew um, it was rewarding uh, because I was learning a lot. So that was great. And then I started um, becoming um, switched to Wall Street job as an analyst recommending buying and selling stocks. Um, I cut the niche actually. Um, I was working for European banks, but doing U.S. Silicon Valley analyzing what Apple and Microsoft are doing and interpret that into Japanese stock market. How, what, which Japanese stock would benefit from what Apple is doing? And we did an amazing business. And I was in Silicon Valley, living in Silicon Valley. I was talking, interviewing, visiting all the Silicon Valley companies. Go to report to New York, report to Tokyo. Uh, as I was cooking a dinner uh, when the Japanese market opened. And I told them when I got that the job in that space, oh, I don't need office. They didn't have office in San Francisco. I don't need office, I can work at home. So they installed T1 back then, this is a long time ago. I would use fax and T1 with Reuters and then Bloomberg terminals in the house. They go, this is a regular house, right? And then the installer comes, yes. But I work for these companies and then they need, I need this. So that's what I did. So I was pretty entrepreneur in, in a sense. I cut my niche and mm -hmm. uh, convinced my bosses. They didn't save their money for my office space. I can work happily at home. Long hours, long span of New York to Tokyo time zone and being in the middle in California. So I was, I've been pretty, um, um, how do you call it? entrepreneur about 
Yes, you have from the start, if you've been able to to set up things like that. And if you were faxing in T1, that was a while ago, way before people were were working from home. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, what have been the biggest mistakes or challenges that you've done as an entrepreneur on your own? Because oh, you have the big company backing you up. Great question. So... When I started uh, Chris Mella, the I was so scared of any public exposure, publicity exposure. Like now I'm talking to you like this, but this is new to me. Maybe I, my first podcast was a year and a half ago, may, not quite two years ago. And I never, I didn't even have Facebook or Instagram account when I started because none of my friends did and I was really scared I wasn't going to share any photos of me not my face either so that was a big mistake because I lost so much opportunities for spreading the because here I am talking about spreading of the word it's biggest challenge Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So if you're listening to the podcast, we're actually recording this on video and Mayumi is absolutely beautiful. She looks way younger than she has to be than she is because of T1 and faxing. She's got a beautiful smile, beautiful earrings that I'm sure have a fantastic back on it. Her hair is great. She's got a Chrismella t-shirt on. It's so personable. So <laughs> I just, I have such a hard time. I, like, I, I mean, so it's just a huge message to if you don't think you can do the PR or you're scared of it, put your yourself out there because here's this person that I'm looking at that I just have such a hard time because she's so articulate, so smart and so successful. So just just do it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that to encourage other people. Especially boomers and uh, boomers plus people like us. It's really hard to overcome the hurdle. Like, I don't want to show my face. I don't want to share my personal th stuff. But these days, nobody remembers, especially if they see it, they only remember something memorable, like, oh, Chris Miller, the year back is amazing. You, they don't remember what way you were, what you said, really. So don't be They scared. remember how you made them feel, not that you had a pimple on your face or something stuck in your teeth or any of that, which none of the, you, you don't, you look absolutely perfect, but uh, that's so true. How did you make them feel? So it's all about your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, we are surprisingly getting down in the time. And so I, I want to ask you some of the questions that I always ask at the end. Um, and I like to know people's favorite foreign word. So mine is in Swahili, Mimi Natakawewe. <laughs> Mimi Natakawewe. <laughs> oh, so go ahead, tell me what that means. It means I love you. And I read about it when I was in elementary school in Japan, reading about this amazing story of uh, uh, doctors working with uh, gorillas in Africa and the gorillas learned how to communicate, I love you. And they were in the Swahili language zone and they understood, they, they taught the gorillas how to say in Swahili, I love you. Aww. I love that story. 
Wait, they taught the gorillas to actually say it? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay, now I'm well, going to they, they were doing the sign language, but Mimi Nataka Wewe, those three things, they learned the sign language in Swahili. Oh, okay. So they learned the sign language for that that could say it. I was trying to imagine a gorilla actually saying <laughs> it. <laughs> I was going to have to go to that Instagram or social media and figure that out. I love that. Okay. And how about your favorite vacation? Favorite vacation, I think uh, going to uh, Ireland and Scotland play golf. My husband and I are crazy golfers. Our goal is to play all the top 100 golf um, courses in the world. And we have only 10 to go. Wow, congratulations. That's huge. So what countries are the last 10 in? Uh, many in the States, um, a few in uh, Asia. Okay. Where has been the wildest golf course that you've been or most memorable? Uh, this one was uh, three, four years ago on King Island, this tiny, tiny island off the coast of Australia. And it's so tiny, And but there are like two or three now wonderful golf courses. And it's really beautiful. But it's so windy. It's so windy to the point that your hair would go like this. And it's really windy. And then the prof, the golf professional there said to us, oh, because it's so windy because there's nothing between us and Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Antarctica wind goes straight to the um, this tiny island, beautiful island called King Island. They have great lobsters too. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. That's good to know. Now, have you played Pebble Beach? Yes, many times. Okay. I figured since that's in California. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a beautiful place. And how about your most um, memorable cross-cultural experience? Um, maybe my first one, because when I first, um, the first time I came to the States, that was also my first time to take a plane, plane ride out of uh, Tokyo. <clears throat> I was pretty domestic, Jap very typical Japanese teenager. And I, well, for my junior year, I um, got the scholarship to become the, um, the uh, exchange student. And I lived in a girl's dorm and uh, some um, by choice because I wanted to learn English as fast as possible. So I immersed myself with all the you know American girls. Uh, in my roommate, not only my roommate, but everybody on the floor, everybody in the building. And they used to make fun of me every time I speak English because I was speaking straight from textbook I mean English textbook from Japan and so I would say something like when I love something I really want it I would say oh it's indispensable for me to have this and that <laughs> and they would repeat many many days after that so in a sense that's how I learned how to explain how to you know what expression is more proper in any given situation, I learned really hard way, but I thank all my roommates. Right. Oh, that's a fantastic story because I bet that was translated from Japanese to English rather than capturing the culture of how it's casually said. 
Ah, another good reminder of good translation is important, even especially in teaching. Right? Yeah, contextual too, like situation wise. If you're presenting to the bunch of doctors, yeah, indispensable, maybe okay, but not every day in a girl's dorm for the sophomores. No, no, not at all. I can't even think of a time when I've used indispensable. I mean, it's a word, I read it, but I, I don't ever use that in, in regular conversation. I have, yeah, I have another recent ex experience. For example, just about uh, half a year ago, um, one of my uh, social media um, managers said, oh, adulting, and I edited it. Adulting is not the word on Instagram. So I edited right away. Miami, we say adulting these days. <laughs> 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 Well, I have I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old. And so I have certainly known through their teenage years because I, I, it's something I've said to them. Well, welcome to adulting. <laughs> but I don't remember how it first came about because I don't know if it's actually in, you know, Webster's dictionary. It's not. <laughs> well, they add about 200 new words and take out a bunch each quarter. So uh, words, language is changing all the time. Very much. Yeah. And um, what final recommendations would you give to anybody that is thinking about bringing a product into the United States? Well, don't be scared. If you have an idea or product you want to try, do it and you learn. Okay, so keeping that learning cap on is you're yep. just going to learn and get better. Yes. Thing, no matter how successful you become, it's always learning, learning, because there's always new things. Look yes. at social media, everything, all the rules change all the time. Yes. Yes, that's what keeps me so engaged in running the, uh, this company, Rapport International, is because it's changed so much since, yeah, you know, even two years ago. Yes, yes. Well, congratulations on the milestone of your podcast. Thank it you. Takes, yeah, it takes, we know it takes a lot of work. It does take a lot of work, but I love doing the interviews. I've talked to so many interesting people with fantastic advice for people who want to export. So where can, where should people go to Chris Mella or to find you? Yes, um, you can Google or um, on Amazon the secure earring lock or chrismella see chrismella spell it if you can oh sure yes yeah. so chrismella is c h r y s m e l a chrismella so uh, but i like that you can either google chrismella or secure earring lock that's fantastic well thank you so much mayumi this has been mayumi this has been such a fantastic conversation thank you wendy for amazing, um, amazing questions. And you know, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Wendy.
Thank you. Right. And to all our listeners, I'm sure you learned something from this one. There was a lot of good information there. So if you know somebody that's looking to go out of the United States or come into the United States, this is a great episode to forward on to them. And I can certainly see that I'm going to be talking to Mayumi afterwards about uh, translation into French and German, because rather than having to do everything at the start, maybe just doing a landing page for your business would work and then people could find you just optimize that landing page and they could still go through the buying buying cycle so always remember it's not a whole big intensive thing to do some translation start out small and you can always build when you see it growing so thanks for listening this time and we'll talk to you next time that's a wrap for this session a big thanks to you for listening to the global marketing show hope you had just as much fun as i did new sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts apple spotify google play and of course on our website if you know someone interested in this topic please tell them about us au revoir for now